You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Many people's grandparents and great-grandparents who immigrated to the United States and settled in the Lower East Side of Manhattan during the early 1900s would not recognize it today, with its trendy bars and art galleries. That is, unless they walk down Orchard Street, where a number of historic businesses are still going strong. They're a reminder of an era when shoppers flocked to the Lower East Side for heavily discounted brand names rather than indie designers and edgy boutiques. One hundred-plus-year-old business with a long history on Orchard Street is Moscot Eyewear. It all started with Hyman Moscot selling ready-to-wear glasses from a modest pushcart in 1915. He opened his first brick-and-mortar shop in 1925 and moved the store to Orchard Street in 1936. Fast forward 107 years to today, and when it comes to eyewear, brands don't get more iconic than Moscot Eyewear. Some noted celebrities in Moscot's little black book full of famous fans include Andy Warhol, Johnny Depp, Jeff Goldblum, Chris Hemsworth, and Ryan Gosling, just to name a few. My guests on the luxury item are father and son duo Harvey and Zach Moscot, the fourth and fifth generation of Moscot who currently run the luxury eyewear brand. Dr. Harvey Moscot is the CEO and also a doctor of optometry. He has guided the evolution of the Moscot brand from a neighborhood optical shop to a global fashion eyewear brand. And while Zach Moscott is the chief design officer dedicated to ensuring the longevity of the brand. Welcome to the luxury item, Harvey and Zach. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining me. There's a great photo that I've seen online of Hyman Moscott standing proudly in front of his first store on Orchard Street. You know, there's lots of branding on this heavily decorated windows, you know, drawings of these giant eyes and glasses a billboard size sign over the entrance with two giant eyes bookending the mascot's name. And under it, in bold lettering, it reads, oldest establishment on Rivington Street and over 16 years at this location. So it was obvious that Hyman Mascot had some kind of brand positioning strategy right from the start. How did he want to position himself and the mascot brand to customers at the beginning? Yeah, I think he was very proud of this achievement to open up a brick and mortar shop in New York City. As an immigrant coming to the U.S., escaping oppression from Eastern Europe, he was an optician. That was his skill set there. And it was when he arrived into America and he just practiced what he did best. And having this shop there and stating the oldest establishment and over 16 years just emphasized his expertise in the eyewear business. You know, that was always something we wanted to promote and we still continue to promote that we are experts in what we do. We understand the business very well and we try to provide our customers with the proper lenses and frames that suit their visual lifestyle. And I I think it's still that he spoke to it then and we continue to do that today. So did good-looking frames even matter back then, or, or was it really all about helping people see better? Yeah, back then you had really, it was more medical. You didn't have the merger of the medical and the fashion components that we saw happen in the 80s and 90s, which has been great for the industry. But back then you basically, you, you had optometrists started, but when Hyman started on a pushcart on Orchard Street, right at the turn of the um, 20th century, um, he, people just picked glasses off his push cart, and if they saw clearly, they kept them. There was really no formalized testing. 
And Moscot is a, really a prime example of an American success story. And it's an institution on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And there are still a number of historic businesses still in operation down there on Orchard Street. What do you attribute to the success and longevity of these early 20th century Lower East Side businesses? Um, you know, there's still a little to none that are five generations. You know, we know that there's second, there's third generations, but the percentages get very, very low. Zach Moscot is fifth generation. I think our story resonates well because it's authentic. I mean, we live in a virtual world today and the authenticity I always think is what really comes through. It's not a, it's, it is a real story. It's not contrived for marketing. It's what we've done and it's our passion that endures to this day. And at what point did Moscot see a strategic opportunity to move from simply an optician that fits lenses into glasses frames to a luxury eyewear brand? We never really, it was all very organic, Scott. And um, we had, you know, unique designs. We have customers that appreciated our story and our heritage and these unique designs. And they would visit our shops from other parts of the world and start asking for these frames. And it was just completely, like I said, organic. We, we always sold these frames in our shop and we really had no intention to become a wholesale distributor of Moscow eyewear, you know, when we sold them in our shop. It was just the demand occurred and, and we rose to that occasion. Zach joined the business a um, little more than a decade ago and with his skill set and design and my understanding of, the, of optics and retail, um, we both agreed, felt passionate about taking our family business to the next level and telling our story to the rest of the world and sharing our designs and our retail experience with people from all over. And in 2012, after 77 years of doing business in the same spot at Orchard Street and Delancey Streets, you moved to the opposite corner. You said the new location was, quote unquote, very much a stake in the ground for the next generation of Moscot and the Moscot family. So it's clear that the family and the brand are emotionally tied to the neighborhood. Did you look at this move to a new space after 77 years as an opportunity to take the brand to the next level, as you were saying? We call it like the virtual push cart, Scott. And today right. we had to move to the other corner. Um, I think, you know, we've always had to pivot and maneuver through tough times. And we've been resilient throughout the last century. When you don't really control the property, you're at the mercy of a landlord. And when things arise and the building is sold, you have no choice but to react. So we did. We were able to secure the corner across the street, giving us great visibility. And the Lower East Side you know, was and will always be our home, where we'll always maintain a presence. It's where we started and it's where we'll die, I always say. It's just that's it's important to who and what we are. And late last year, you, you again moved the business on Delancey and Orchard to a location really just a stone's throw away on Orchard, the second change within a decade. So what prompted that move? Again, it, you, there's few things you can really control, and that's, you know, leases and landlords, basically. Yeah. And um, we were faced with something that was somewhat of a surprise to us. Um, um, on the real estate front, we had an opportunity to finally secure our own property where we can put our stake in the ground and never have to move the push cart once again right. in that neighborhood. So we took advantage of it and um, we viewed the, the pandemic as an opportunity like my you know, relatives before me during difficult crises and we, we were able to find some opportunities during it. And, and Scott, you mentioned the sign in the beginning of this interview, the sign above Hyman. Um, mm -hmm. 
you could call it ironic or fate, but that he was located, the first shop was on 94 Rivington Street, and the building that we secured where our shop is today is 94 Orchard Street. Yeah, we're around the block, same number. Wow. It was kind of meant to be. I mean, the whole story was meant to be. <laughs> and and today, you currently have, I think, 18 stores in 12 cities globally with a couple of new ones in the pipeline. The figures I saw from 2019 said 50% of Moscot's sales come from your European stores with the other 50% spread between the US and the rest of the world. Is that breakout still the same? Yeah, I think one of the unique, unique things about our business is we're pretty well diversified in terms of both channels of trade. We sell direct to consumer wholesale, direct to, direct to consumer of course includes e-commerce. And we also sell, you know, 50% of our businesses from the U.S. and 50% is abroad. So it, it's, it's a good mix. It helped us during these tough times as far as hedging and leveraging businesses in different parts of the world. And um, it, it's, it, it's it, the breakout's pretty much still the same. Yes. And what percent of your business comes from optical versus sunglasses? Optical is the majority of what we do. Um, people come and trust us with their vision, like we said earlier, as experts in the field and providing the proper advice. We focus on prescription eyewear. So I would say, and, and, and sunwear and sunglasses is certainly one of the greatest fashion accessories of today. So that's a part of it too. But I would say our mix is about 65 optical percent optical and about 35% sunglasses. And the design approach you take for the stores are really interesting. It's like a nostalgic trip back in time to Grandma Sylvia Moscott's living room, you know, filled with tchotchkes and vintage furniture and artifacts from the family archives, tin ceilings that are a signature trait of Lower Manhattan's period architecture. What kind of in-store vibe are you hoping to give off to customers when they step in the store? inviting we really like our shops to feel inviting not intimidated comfortable and unassuming i mean you know we never take ourselves too seriously we always remain humble and thankful for all of our customers and we want the environment to also make them feel comfortable it was always the aesthetic again also is extremely organic um my dad was very much into antiques it's a funny little story and he would purchase antiques and auction and thinks things, certain things were beautiful and would bring them home to my mom. And she would say, I don't like that at all. And where do you think it, <laughs> and where do you think it ended up? It ended up in the shop. So it was this amalgam or what we called like organized entropy in our mascot shops that became our, you know, became our physical appearance. And we've recreated it all around the world in our shops. I was just going to add, it's funny, Scott, because we never really, we never really sat in a room and said, you know, a shop should look this way or be this way. It was kind of, I guess what you could call the prototype for other shops is really just this collection of history and stuff that the family collected over, over centuries, including even custom cabinetry that now we will replicate for, for a new shop. But it's really just the, the recipe was just this organic collection over time, which is so unique. It's very interesting. And the design approach, you, I think you just indicated that is the same in the European locations, too. Do they react differently in Europe with the store design and the approach versus the U.S.? I think in Europe, our shops are uniquely different from every other shop in Europe. You know, they're just, they tend to be in, 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 in many cities throughout Europe. They're kind of more clinical, um, bland. They try to showcase the frames and make everything kind of unassuming so that the frames pop. A Moscow environment is, is different and, I, and they've, it's so different that I think they find it enjoyable. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we try to, wherever we go, we try to bring a little slice of downtown New York City or a piece of the Lower East Side DNA that we've been talking about. 
And um, a lot of it is that familial warmth, you know, we're a family business. So we want that to be felt when someone walks in and, you know, it's the materials that we choose. It's the quirky tchotchkes that we talked about. It's the strange art or the things that my grandfather collected um, that give it that unique Moscow feeling. And I think a lot of people are, are taken back in a positive way, or they just see this, you know, wild space. A lot of people don't even realize we're selling eyeglasses at first. Right. So I mean, in our original shop, my father was such an art lover. We had a print Norman Rockwell, which was showed the diversity of New York city. Mm -hmm. Every race and creed was in that. And it said, do unto others as you have others do unto you. And that's kind of been like somewhat of a, you know, silent message behind everything we do with our, with our customers and our employees. And it was all because of my dad's appreciation for art. These things just entered the shop. Like you said before, the key appeal lies in its New York City heritage. And do you see customers in Europe and Asia embracing the Moscot story and its heritage? Or is it just purely, you know, the distinct designs over there? I mean, New York City is still the epicenter of the world and it will continue to be as far as a creative energies culture it's still revered we go to europe a lot and all of our the people we run into they can't wait to come back to new york city so i i think that's still very important and it defines who we are especially the lower east side which was always the hotbed for creatives and artists and that type of persona so i do think that's a big part of our brand and what resonates with our customers I think we're fortunate, though, it's the designs as well, right? Because the designs also speak to, you know, their Americana, it's Heritage New York. Um, but people certainly appreciate the fact that we're a privately held five generational family business. Mm -hmm. I think there's very far and few in between, um, especially that remain with that nature and have been able to take their story to other parts of the world. The pandemic took its toll on many businesses that long earned their keep through brick and mortar operations. The businesses with the strongest pandemic recoveries had one key factor in common. They embraced technology or leveled up their digital experiences. And like most eyewear establishments, Moscot's business is predominantly in store. So were you prepared to pivot to a full-on digital experience for customers when the pandemic hit? We were, we, we were fortunate that we were well prepared. We had replatformed and built a new e-commerce site in 2017. And that was probably our third iteration of a website. So we were ready to go. And there were a lot of factors, I think that also supported us during the pandemic. I think one being our sector in general, um, we were considered um, an essential business in a lot of forms due to the eye care component as well. Um, but because of our size, we're very nimble. We were able to pivot also our personnel. And we started to introduce things such as virtual appointments where we were having our customers sign on to Zooms and we were styling them and, you know, checking in with them. Um, we also introduced other technologies such as our virtual try-on so people could try on the frames online. And it was true to scale and true to fit, which was important to us so that the optical experience was as good as it could be from a, di a digital lens. And um, I feel like we were, we were in a good position to really you know, be able to do different things during a very tough time. And the pandemic also forced eyewear brands to find new ways of engaging customers while they were at home. So how is Muscat reaching consumers trapped in their homes? We reach out to customers all the time. Um, of course, we've always been marketing, whether it was my grandfather or my great-grandfather. 
you know, maybe it was, it was post at that time, but we do it now, obviously, through other channels, through social media, through email, uh, through phone, uh, through live chat. So we're constantly communicating with our fans and trying to engage with them in different forms. And how much of your business now is e-commerce? Our goal is to get it to about 20% and we're fairly close. So staying relevant as a well-established brand is much more difficult these days. There has been a major decline in brand loyalty as younger audiences crave newness and flocking to these up-and-coming brands as opposed to established brands and retailers. And in the early 2010s, there was an explosion of new direct-to-consumer companies that transformed the way people shop and stealing share away from the incumbents. Upstart brands like Harry's and Bonobos, and of course, eyewear brand Warby Parker, which circumvented traditional channels, designing glasses in-house and engaging with customers directly. How did Muscat respond to Warby Parker's sledgehammer to the eyewear market? I like the word sledgehammer, Scott. Um, you know, they were a business that started online that eventually went to brick and mortar. We started on, we started as brick and mortar, remained brick and mortar and went online. It was a, first of all, hats off. They did a wonderful job in innovating the business and, and coming to market the way they did. And we viewed it, I mean, in, in the industry, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of talk among my optometric colleagues, among opticians. When I went to meetings, everybody was so concerned. And, um, you know, there, it's, it's a big world out there. It's a big eyewear market. And in our, in our view, they brought great visibility to the entire eyewear industry, uh, made people more cognizant that eyewear is a fantastic fashion accessory. You need to have more than one pair. So we kind of viewed it as like rising tide floated, floats all boats, right? It really elevated the industry and many people's perception. And I think we benefited greatly from their push into this market. I agree. And I think we continue to, right? They're bringing awareness to eyewear. And I think uh, something that maybe our industry was missing was having different um, tiers or, or entry points, um, like we would view clothing, you know? So it, it was actually, it was helpful. You're at different points in your careers. You're looking for a different type of product. Um, so it, it, like fashion, I think having different price points, different products, different designs, it's only been helpful. And, yeah. and also, and I think also it speaks to the fact that we focused on our expertise. You know, we, we handle people's vision problems a little differently and understand optics. It's not a very simple industry to enter the optical business. It's not like selling shirts off the shelf. It's a complex industry with a deep knowledge of optics that's necessary. There's eye exams. There's the whole medical side integrated into the fashion side that we've been doing for a very, very long time. Also to note, Scott, we are international too. So we've, we're in a lot of different countries and face a lot of different versions of, of Warby Parker. And um, so I think to Harvey's point, there's different, um, there's different challenges and pros and cons in all different countries around the world and different um, laws, regulations, things like that. Many icons of pop culture over the last hundred years have reached their status with a mix of attitude and really badass pair of glasses. You know, Woody Allen, Hunter S. Thompson, Tom Cruise in Risky Business, Walter White from Breaking Bad, and the list goes on. Andy Warhol and John Lennon often wore Moscot's Milton frames, that classic round-shaped model that was first introduced, I think, in the 30s. Why are we so obsessed with enigmatic eyewear? Harvey's famous line is, he always says, you know, Glasses are the first thing you put on in the morning, the last thing you take off. <laughs> and, um, you know, from an accessory point of view, they will often define who you are and how people perceive you. And it's, that's one of the things I love most about designing eyewear is knowing that when I design a pair of frames, it could 
literally change the way others see someone or how they feel about themselves. It's a very emotional product. It's emotional design. And so I think a lot of times people are using this accessory because it's on your face as the most prominent thing to really define and say who you are and, and how bold you are or how, you know, how you want to come off as a, in, in terms of your fashion and style. It's, it's amazing. It took so long, Scott, for eyewear to become a fashion accessory, right? Because people focus on shoes and handbags and things, but this is not only a fashion accessory, it's a visual device. So it's, it's, it's such an important part of somebody's life. If you're an eyeglass wearer that having these frames being speak to who and what you are really should have happened way longer. And in Europe, they kind of embraced it sooner than in Americans. And Harvey, you graduated optometry school in 1986 and began working as a doctor at Saul Moscott. And you took over as president of the company in 2010. In your new role, what areas of the business did you see the opportunities for growth? You know, being in the exam room with my family, my dad at the front counter, my brother, may he rest in peace at the counter too. It was really a family business and interacting with customers and hearing what they thought about our business and, and, and patients coming from Europe or other states coming to us because they trusted us with their eye care kind of gave me that like aha moment. And, 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 and I realized that nobody can tell our story as good as we can. So there was a great opportunity to expand our retail presence and tell our story and do the work that we're doing in our one shop on Orchard Street in many other places. And Zach, you officially joined the business in 2013 as chief design officer. You were trained as an industrial designer. As a fifth generation mascot and the youngest, how were you thinking about the design direction of the brand when you joined? I think there's pressure, of course, to stay true to to all of the, my predecessors, the prior generations, having grown up in the business, interning as a child, visiting as a, as a kid, you know, spending dinners and time, you know, with my grandfather, my father, you live in a family business, it's really all you talk about. And it's kind of just work and life becomes intertwined. So there's certainly an appreciation for the history, what my father did for many years before even I was in the business, what his father did. So I'm constantly, you know, referencing our past from a design perspective, but also a cultural perspective in order to really understand, you know, and, and have informed design decisions when I'm designing new collections. So I think the past is very much a part of, of the present and the future for us. And respecting the legacy from a design perspective is really important in terms of craft quality um, sometimes simplicity in design is really important. And it's important to note, Zach entered the business, Scott, without an optical background. Up until that point, you had to be well-versed in optics, either as an optometrist or an optician. You had to really had the exposure. Zach had an industrial, industrial design product degree. So he really entered the business with a different perspective that was extremely refreshing and innovating. What is Moscot doing on the sustainability front? I think we talked a lot in the beginning about the authenticity of our story. And I think first and foremost, that's something that goes a long way, especially with our younger customers or Gen Z customers, because a lot of them are looking for a brand that they can really grab onto or, or latch onto and understand. And why are they doing what they're doing? Why are they making what they're making? And I, and I think our authentic story, our real story is something that they appreciate first and foremost. Um, and then strictly from a sustainability point of view, of course, we're using all of the latest acetates and materials that are eco-friendly or bio-friendly, as you mentioned. But 
for me, it's really sustainability and design. And what I mean by that is that the quality of our frames is, is so great that we have customers coming in 10, 12, 15 years wearing the same frame. And so when you think about what that means, that, that to me is the ultimate form of sustainability because you're not discarding your frame, you're not using multiple pairs, you're not wasting material. So I think through design, through quality, we really achieve um, a form of sustainability. And you've done some really interesting collaborations and partnerships over the last several years from Wings and Horns, Common Projects, Freeman Sporting Club, Smart Automobile, and Todd Snyder. What do you look for in a collaboration partner? We look for something that's better than one plus one equals two. We like when one plus one equals three. And sometimes that's a story um, that's special. Sometimes it's a product that when we put our heads together as two brands, we come up with something that's unique. In the case of um, Wings and Horns, for example, it it wasn't just slapping our logos on a frame or on their clothing, but it was figuring out how we could use a cleaning cloth material and a case and infuse it into the jacket and the t-shirt so that there was this utilitarian aspect to the collaboration way to combine the projects. So, you know, it's something along those lines when we're looking to collaborate with other partners. And how are audiences finding you? You know, I would imagine there's a lot of Google searches asking things like, what brand of glasses does Jeff Goldblum wear? That I would imagine Google must be a big part of it given so many celebrities wearing mascot. I think Google's a big part of everything for everyone nowadays. Um, But yes, we do have a robust SEO and SEM strategy that we are investing in on the digital front. But I think our physical presence also really allows new customers to find us, to see us, to feel us, to try on. Um, And that's why my father and I are on a mission to open up more mascot shops, because it's just a great way to expose new customers to the brand and give them that unique experience that we were talking about. And charity is also a big part of Mascot experience. You know, could you talk a little bit about the Mascot Mobilize Foundation? Throughout history, my grandfather was very philanthropic. Even during World War II, he helped give eye tests and gave out free glasses. So back in 2006, we formed Mascot Mobilize. Um, it was an opportunity when I was examining eyes to take the skill set and the team out of the office and help underprivileged New Yorkers who have been so good to us, the city of New York, the people of New York, that we felt it was our time to give back. And we mobilized um, quarterly, every two, three months. We went to the Boys Club, we went to the Doe Fund, the folks that just were released from prison and were trying to get their lives back on track. And giving them vision was just the most gratifying thing. And at that time, people's access to care was a little difficult because you would get maybe one pair through a Medicaid program. And if a child broke their glasses, they have to wait two years. And they would often tell us there you couldn't afford a second pair. So we felt this need. It was our time to give back to the city of New York. That's been so good to us. And um, it was a very gratifying mission. And then Obamacare kicked in and the need was less in demand for us mm-hmm. to do it. But that's basically how it started. And it was. Um, the staff loved it. It was great to provide care that you didn't get paid for and you just got paid for in, in, in just appreciation and gratitude. But we're finding ways to evolve the program. Uh, Scott, for example, during the pandemic, um, we, we talked about pivoting staff. Um, we even allocated staff just to focus on creating prescription eyeglasses for frontline healthcare workers. And we created this, it was almost like 
an upstart of a new business, but we essentially gifted 5,000 pairs to frontline healthcare workers around the country. Um, and it, it was an incredible feat and we were featured on the cover of Newsweek. And so I think just giving back to the community, our country, when in need, um, it's, it's certainly a part of, of who we are as a, as a multi-generational American business. So what do you think Hyman Muscat would say today about the newest chapter of the Muscat story? Um, he would definitely say, remain humble. Don't forget where you came from. Continue to treat every customer with the utmost respect and integrity. Appreciate their business and um, continue to be fair and, and love what you do. So my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. And I'm going to ask this to you both separately, if you could answer it separately. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service so you can call somebody to get you off that island. What would that one single luxury item that you would like to have with you on that deserted island? For me, sight is one of them is the most precious sense that humans have. Without the ability to see clearly and comfortably, you won't be able to get off that island. So my answer is pretty obvious and um, pretty clear that having the properly fitted, comfortable pair of glasses providing you with the clearest vision would be the, the most desired item that one would need. Otherwise, you couldn't spell SOS in the, uh, in the sand. Exactly. He's not selling you at all, Scott, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Zach? I guess it depends. If I'm trying to survive, um, it might be a timepiece so that I can keep track of my days and my time. If I'm trying to pass time, however, it might be a guitar. Um, so I guess it depends on, on the context of the situation and, and what my needs are. But in terms of, if it's survival or passing of time, it would be one of those two objects. Harvey and Zach Muscat of Muscat Eyewear, thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you, Scott. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.